If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. That's page 1012 in the black pew Bibles in front of you, if you're using one of those. James 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 26. It's to the end of the chapter. We live in a world of counterfeits. Everywhere we turn, we find replicas and lookalikes and false representations of real things. We see this most often in material things. We don't have to try very hard to think of products that are copied from the original, right? Sometimes this isn't necessarily a bad thing. We wouldn't call them counterfeits. Maybe they're just generic, right? I mean, think about the grocery industry, For almost any name brand food product, there is a store brand knockoff. I mean, I've spent most of my life eating generic store brand food products. You know, there's Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, Cocoa Puffs. And then there's Cocoa Roos, right? In the the bags. Sometimes they're better. I don't know. There's Lucky Charms, right? And then there's Marshmallows and Stars. There's Ritz Crackers. Delicious. I mean, nothing beats a Ritz cracker. But then there's golden round crackers as well, right? They come in the, the generic box. Um, we, we, so, like, we, we've probably all eaten these generic uh, products, these generic foods, but we all have our limits, probably. G- generic cereal? I can do generic cereal. Generic Pop-Tarts? Yeah, I can do generic Pop-Tarts. Phil can't do generic Pop-Tarts, apparently. Now, generic ranch dressing? That's where I draw the line, right? I got to have the Hidden Valley, right? I mean, can I get an amen? Um, I love that uh, name brand, ranch dressing. But then there are actual counterfeit products, right? These are products that claim to be the real thing, but they're actually fake. I remember being in high school and taking a trip to Washington, D.C., and encountering those totally trustworthy and not at all shady characters on the street selling what? Watches? Oakley sunglasses is what I was thinking. Maybe, this is, maybe they don't do that anymore. This is probably 20 years ago. Selling Oakley sunglasses for $10. $10. Then on the bus ride, there's a busload of teenagers who, who think they're so cool with their new sunglasses that are falling apart. And the, the Oakley logo is peeling off the side, you know. And we called them Jokeleys because they weren't the real thing. There's the many knockoff electronics that come from overseas, whether it's headphones or smartphones or digital cameras, the list goes on and on. They're all a ripoff of the real thing. And then there's clothing and accessory products, knockoff jeans and hats and purses and watches and pretty much anything you can think of. Basically, if you want to give the appearance of being fashionable without actually being fashionable, you can People make their living producing low-quality copies of real things. Now, I'm not here to preach against the benefits or pitfalls of purchasing generic products. I, for one, am thankful for the generic products and appreciate being able to get something similar to name brand at a lower price, except ranch dressing. Don't mess with my ranch dressing. But when it comes to something that's counterfeit, that's another issue. Because then we're dealing with the problem of lying. When something is a counterfeit, whether it be money 
or a product. It's being portrayed as something that it is not. There is the element of deception involved. That's what makes it a counterfeit. But we see this counterfeit principle at work not only in external material things, but also in our own hearts. Our own hearts can actually deceive us. This is a principle we see throughout Scripture. Very common passage. We've referenced it a lot over the years. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our own hearts are deceitful. Even here in the book of James, we've already seen deception mentioned. In chapter 1, verse 22, we read, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you hear the word of God, but you don't obey the word of God, you are deceiving yourself. In chapter 1, verse 26, we read, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. Your religion is worthless. You see, the book of James actually has a lot to say to us about our own deceptive hearts. And in our passage today, he drills down even deeper into what this deception looks like. You see, church, we face a very real danger in the Christian life. We must understand that it is entirely possible for us to deceive ourselves about our own faith. It is possible for us to convince ourselves that we have true, authentic faith when, in fact, there is none. The Bible actually talks about this a lot. And for James, one of the primary ways to verify whether our faith is real is not to ask ourselves if we simply believe the right things. This is what we often do. But we are to look at our lives and see whether our lives match what we say we believe. Now, if this sounds familiar, that's because we saw the same thing for three months in the book of Titus. Remember that Titus repeatedly calls us to a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. What we know is supposed to accord with how we live. For James, if our lives are not marked by good works toward our fellow man, then we should seriously question whether our faith is a living, genuine faith. Now, my hope today is that we would understand and apply this simple truth, that true saving faith will be accompanied by good works toward our fellow man. True saving faith will be accompanied by good works toward our fellow man. Let's read, starting in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, before we continue to unpack the main idea of this passage which is what I just stated, true saving faith will be accompanied by good works, we need to address what makes these verses quite controversial. This passage is often misunderstood because at first glance, it seems to contradict Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. Not just Paul's, but the rest of the New Testament's teaching on justification by faith alone. Look at verse 24. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's problematic, or at least it sounds problematic. Doesn't that contradict what we see in Paul, who very clearly teaches that we are justified by faith alone? And didn't we just celebrate the 500th anniversary of the, of the Reformation a few months ago? where one of the five foundational principles of the Reformation is sola fide, faith alone. The teaching that we are justified by faith alone apart from works is a doctrine of first importance for our Christian faith. It is not negotiable. Without it, we lose the gospel because we begin to base our justification on our faith and our works. So is James a heretic here? Isn't he setting himself up against Paul and undermining the heart of the Christian faith? But if we read James 2 and we are drawn into that debate, then we have already misunderstood the whole point of what James is saying. You see, James is not concerned with pitting faith against works. In fact, it's that separation that he has a problem with. In his mind, there should not even be a separation between faith and works. Now, they're not the same thing. Faith is not works, and works is not faith. But with true faith will certainly come works. And if works are not present then there can be no true faith. James is defining for us what true faith should look like. 
Just as Luther is often credited as saying, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. With the faith will come the works. In his commentary on Galatians, Luther says this, to think to ourselves, if faith justifies without works, let us work nothing. This is to despise the grace of God. Idle faith is not justifying faith. Again, Luther says in in another document, we say that justification is effective without works, not that faith is without works. It is one thing to say that faith justifies without works. It is another thing that faith exists without works. So again, James is not pitting faith and works against one another. What he's saying is, some of you claim to have faith, but there's no evidence of it in your life. You should seriously question whether you have faith. Now, much more can be said about this, and more will be said as we go on. We're going to come back to this at the end, because I think it'll make more sense. But I wanted to tackle it head on at the beginning, because, so that we can have a framework in our minds for how to understand it. In his commentary on James, John MacArthur says this, and this is a very good way to phrase this. James is not in conflict with Paul about the basis of salvation, as some interpreters have maintained. They are not standing face-to-face confronting each other, but they are standing back-to-back fighting two common enemies. Paul opposes works-righteous legalism. That's what Paul is, is combating when he is writing. What is Paul saying? You don't have to be circumcised. You don't need the works of the law to be justified before God. You need faith. That's what Paul is arguing. But James, <clears throat> but James opposes easy believism. What James is saying is some of you claim to have faith with your mouths, but you, you don't care for your brothers and sisters. There's no evidence of it. So they're fighting two common and opposite enemies of the gospel. But let's get back to our main point. We'll come back to this at the end. True saving faith will be accompanied by good works toward our fellow man. To make his point, James spends a lot of time describing false faith. So we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about false faith. The first thing that we see is that a false faith is a deceptive faith. Look again at verse 14. Notice how James phrases the issue. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The key here is this person says he has faith. It's not that the person has faith. He says he has faith. The fact that someone confesses faith in Christ does not mean that his faith is genuine. There have been many, many people throughout the history of the world who have deceived themselves in this way. You may know people in your own life who at one time professed to be Christians and even seemed to follow Him with their lives, but over time they have turned away. 
And this reality is something that is talked about all throughout Scripture, that our hearts can deceive us. Jesus himself talks about this a lot in the Gospels. Let's look at just one passage. This is from Matthew 7, from the Sermon on the Mount. Turn there if you want. If not, just just listen. This is Matthew chapter 7. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Sounds a lot like James. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by what? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen to these next verses because they serve as a great warning to us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We could go on and on. Jesus addresses this issue over and over. I mean, think about this. Jesus just said on that day, on the day of judgment, many people are going to stand up and say, look at what we did. We prophesied in your name. We casted out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. Have any of you done those things? Who here has casted out demons or done many mighty works in the name of the Lord? These people have. There's no genuine faith. Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we see this in Paul. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says, test yourself. Look at your life. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. In Peter, we see this. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So again, true belief, true faith will be supplemented with good works. John's teaching, we see this in John 
1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. He's addressing people who have turned from the faith, antichrists. The true, their true nature is, has been revealed because they have left. If they were truly believers, they would have continued with us. In Hebrews, we see this. This is Hebrews chapter 10 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Again, if our life does not match our doctrine, we should be very suspect of our faith. And don't forget about Judas. Judas followed Jesus for years. He had, as far as we know, every appearance to outsiders of true faith. I mean, he was with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He, was probably, he probably participated in many of the miraculous things that Jesus did. He gave every appearance of being a true disciple. But in the end... All that he proved was that his faith was a counterfeit. See, on the day of Christ, when we stand before the throne of judgment, only true faith will do. Our hearts are deceptive. A false faith is a deceptive faith. But second, a false faith lacks compassion. Verses 15 and 16. Now, this gets to the real evidence of a false faith. We can't read each other's hearts. We might think we can, but we can't. But evidence of a false faith will be seen in a refusal to love our neighbor and show compassion to those who are in need. Now, James is not talking about perfection here, okay? He's not saying that any failure at all means that we are not believers. Of course, we're not going to love others perfectly. Of course, we're going to sin against people and become lazy at times in our service to others. James is not talking about those temporary, momentary lapses. What he's talking about is an overt lifestyle of consistent disregard for those around us who are in need. Look at the example he gives in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, is, what good is that? His point is, it's not any good, right? You've done nothing for them. You leave your brother and sister in need to simply wish for good things for people without doing anything to help them in their time of need is no indication of true saving faith. And notice that this person does not say, okay, that this person who does not have true faith, they do not say this, I don't care about you, get out of my face. They don't say that. What do they say? They actually say something that sounds 
encouraging and spiritual. Go in peace, brother. Be warmed and filled. I wish you the very best. But he doesn't lift a finger to help ease the person's struggle. This is a counterfeit faith. It parades around like the real thing. It puts on a mask. It pretends to show compassion for others, but in the end, it's false. It's not true faith. Now, one aspect of this false faith is a failure to understand that God has called each of us to be his hands and feet. And what did Jesus himself say in Matthew 25? Probably a familiar passage to most of us. Matthew 25, verse 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, why are they going to inherit the kingdom? For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? We don't remember this. And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Friends, when we serve our fellow man, we show compassion to them. We are serving our Lord. We are showing compassion to our Lord. Do you get that? That's what this passage says. When we feed the hungry, when we clothe those who are in need, when we care for the, the fatherless, when we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, especially those whom the world has cast out, we are caring for Christ. That's not blasphemy. That's straight from the words of Jesus. We are called to be the ones that provide for the needs of our fellow man, especially our fellow brothers and sisters. If we don't do it, then who will? A false faith lacks compassion. You see, the works that James is calling us to are the same good works that Paul says God has prepared beforehand for us, Ephesians 2. They are the selfless acts of service toward those who have no ability to repay us. It's one thing to serve someone who could probably serve you back. It's another thing to serve someone who has no ability to repay you. Maybe they don't even want to. But James also makes an even more devastating point. Third, a false faith is a dead faith. A false faith is a dead faith. Look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is giving us a rhetorical question here. His point is that, of course, that faith cannot save you. 
He's not asking that question because He really wants us to answer it. He's asking it to make the point that apart from works, there can be no true faith. Look at verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It's not like it's still there, just not really working right. It's dead. Faith is dead. Verse 20 says, faith apart from works is what? Useless is the word there. And just in case James wasn't clear enough, he says again in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, what are these works that James is talking about? We've already seen some of it. But they are not the ceremonial works of the law that the Apostle Paul often talks about. That's another key difference between how James and Paul talk about works. In Paul's letters, when he talks about how works are not necessary for salvation, the works he is often referring to are the ceremonial works of the religious Jewish system, such as circumcision, temple worship, and the sacrificing of animals. Not all the time. I'm not saying that he's talking about those things exclusively, but that's the majority of the time. Those are the works that Paul is saying, we don't need to do these things in order to be justified. But here, the works that James is talking about are the same good works he's already mentioned several times in the letter. In 126, if a person's religion is true, he bridles his tongue. That's a good work. Shut your mouth, right? Stop saying things you should not be saying. If a person's, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, if a person's religion is pure and undefiled, he cares for orphans and widows and others who are in need. In chapter 2, if a person shows partiality or if we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, then we are lawbreakers just like people who murder or who commit adultery. The failure, our failure to love our neighbor is just as serious as someone who murders or who commits adultery. That's James's point. And if you fail in one part of the law, the failure to love your neighbor, you have broken all the law. So you are just as condemned as a murderer or an adulterer. James's point so far is that our failure to extend compassion to others, to fail to treat them as we would want to be treated, is a serious heart problem. And if we do not love our neighbor, our hearts are deceived, our faith is dead, and we cannot continue to claim that our faith is real. You see, just because a person has an interest in even a great interest in the things of God or in theology or just because they are around other believers or just because they attend church regularly or just because they make an outward profession of faith does not mean their faith is genuine. James is asking the most important question a professing Christian can ask. What good is it if you say you have faith and there is no evidence of it in your life, can that faith save you from hell? His answer is a resounding no. It is a false faith. 
It's a dead faith. But last, we see that a false faith is a demonic faith. Some of you might be sitting there saying, but Caleb, how can you say what you're saying? I believe the right things. I believe in the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. I believe in his sinless perfection and in his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection. I even believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. I am a good, consistent, five-point Calvinist. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I've walked down an aisle at church camp, and I've cried a lot. How can you say that my faith is not real? First of all, I'm not saying your faith isn't real. Don't take that, right? But the answer that I would give to this objection would just be to quote from James himself in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Church, we need to think seriously about this because we are so good. I'm preaching to myself here. I am so good about compartmentalizing this in my own mind. We often think that loving others and serving others in real practical ways, these good works that James is talking about, that these things are somehow optional We think that it is something that we can add on to our lives if we have time or when it's convenient. We think what really matters is that I continue to believe the right things. Yes, I know my fellow brothers and sisters are suffering or they're in need. And yes, I know there are things I can do to help. But what really matters about my salvation is that I mentally assent to certain spiritual truths because that is what faith is. The love and service stuff, that's good. But believing the right doctrine is what really matters. That's what really matters. But church, James, James blows us right out of the water. The demons, even Satan himself, believes the right things about God. Satan is a better theologian than anyone in this room. We even have examples in Scripture of demons confessing the right things about Jesus. In Mark 1, a man with a demon stands up and says, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Friends, that statement is a truer confession about the nature of Christ than many who would call themselves Christians would know how to give. And yet, this demon has no true saving faith. Does he know the right things about the nature and work of Christ? You better believe he does. He knows who Jesus is, and he shudders. He's terrified of him. Satan and the demonic forces know more than you about God. They have a better understanding of his power 
than you do. They are deathly afraid of it. And the reason they are afraid of it is because they lack love. They see Christ for who He is, but in that, all they see is their own judgment. And this is true for those who have a false faith. They may confess the right things. They may be some of the best theologians or most gifted teachers, but if they do not love Christ and they do not love their fellow man, then their faith is not genuine. A false faith is a demonic faith. Now, that's hard stuff. It's, it, it's not only hard to put together in, in, in your mind, at least in my mind, it, it's also hard to just say out loud those things. I've spent a lot of time talking about the serious warning that James is giving in this passage. Now, many of you might be wondering, okay, how then should we be thinking about faith and works? Still doesn't really fit How do they fit together? You might also be feeling like you failed miserably. Maybe this sermon has caused you to question whether you have true faith. And if so, these are things that we need to address. James gives us some examples of what true saving faith looks like in verses 20 through 26. Let's read that passage again, verses 20 through 26. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? (laughs) Just calls us all fools. That faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We could spend a lot of time unpacking this. We could go back and read the account of Abraham and the promise God made and his, his almost sacrifice of Isaac. But here's just some observations that I want to make about uh, what James says here in these passages. Here are just some observations about faith and works. Hopefully some of this, these will stick with you. In verse 22, James specifically says that Abraham's faith was active along with his works. Faith was active along with his works. He is not pitting faith and works against one another. He's saying they go together. Works is active, or faith is active along with the works. Second, he then specifically says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. So again, works is an essential component of faith. It's not something that exists separately from faith. It's not like you can separate the working of the faith out from faith. 
Because faith, part of the faith, is the work. Then in verse 26, he likens faith and works to the union of spirit and body. Can our bodies continue to exist apart from our spirit? Of course not. In the same way, faith apart from works ceases to exist. So again, James is crystal clear. True saving faith will always include works. To separate them is to destroy faith. And it's really interesting when you go back and you read the account of Abraham, the God, God's promise to Abraham. When God made His promise, what, what, does this, what does the Bible say Abraham did? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so there's a belief. There is a mental assent. Now, if we were to talk to Abraham and say, okay, Abraham, you believed God, does that just mean that you believed in your mind the right things? Is that it? He would say, no, of course not. I took my son to the top of a mountain with wood on his back, and I laid him out on it, and I lifted a knife up into the air, and I was going to kill him. That's a work. That's, that's belief put into action. And it's interesting, when you read that account in Genesis chapter 22, when God stops Abraham, what does God say? Now I know, now I know that you have believed the promise. Now I know. It's not that God didn't know. God knows everything. But the point is, the, the, the work completes the faith. It is necessary to have faith is not just believing things in your mind. It is putting faith into action. We could talk about Rahab. This is a Gentile Canaanite woman who hid the spies as they came into the land. She put her, her life, the life of her family, her home, all of that at risk to hide these men and then allow them to escape through the back door so that they were not captured by the enemy. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She was a Gentile prostitute. And yet, James lists her along with Abraham as one of true saving faith because she put her faith into action. She cared for others at a risk of her own personal safety. That's true faith. Again, faith is active along with works. So to sum up, how should we think about faith and works? We've, we've said it a lot of different ways. I'm trying to just kind of give you a lot of summary statements about how to understand this because we don't want to walk away from here thinking that this is somehow contradicting the rest of Scripture. But good works are not bad when they are seen as the goal of salvation, not its ground. While good works are not meritorious of salvation, they are a necessary component of Christian faith. As James states, faith apart from works is dead. And Paul makes this same point when he says that we are not saved by good works, but that we are saved for good works. 
It's another way of saying exactly what James says. So we must stop separating good works from faith in our minds. They are not the same thing, but they must go together. You cannot have true saving faith without good works. It is impossible. These good works that we have are not the basis of our justification. Our faith is the basis of our justification. But faith in itself includes works. I have some more quotes here, but I feel like I've beat that to death, so we're going to move on. Now, what does this passage say to those of us feeling condemned? This might be where most of us are. Maybe we feel condemned or we're questioning, doubting our own salvation at this moment. It's not my goal. It's not the point of this for you to leave here feeling condemned or doubting. But we must first understand examining ourselves to see if we are in the faith is not a bad thing. In fact, it's actually a biblical command, as we've already seen. So don't think that it's inherently wrong to question your heart. We should probably question our hearts more than we do. But as we question our hearts, I want us to remember five things. These are very short. Don't worry. I don't have five more points. There's five things that we can remember as we question our own hearts. Man, am I, am I a believer? <laughs> I don't know. First, first thing to remember, we have failed to uphold, to uphold God's perfect standard of righteousness. We have all failed. God is perfectly righteous. He calls us to be perfectly righteous. None of us are. That's one. Two, Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. So all of these failures that I've been talking about, all of our failures to love our neighbor, Christ fulfilled them all. He loved perfectly. Okay? Keep that in your mind. Third, Christ died in the place of his people, bearing our punishment for us. He lived a perfect life, and then when he died, he was murdered, and he took on the sin of his people. So that crushing weight that some of you are feeling, maybe right now because of your sin and your failures, you don't have to bear that. That's there, and it's real, but Christ has already borne that for you. Fourth, by faith, there's that word, by faith in Christ, we are immediately made new creatures. God gives us faith. Graciously, he grants us faith, and when we have faith, we are immediately made new creatures. That's fourth. And fifth, true faith that recognizes our undeserved salvation is our power and motivation for good works. You get that? True faith when we recognize our undeserved mercy and salvation that we have in Christ, 
then we are empowered and motivated for good works. Why? Because of what we've received. Do you see how that works? So don't leave here today saying, all right, I got to go. I got to go love people. I got to pull my boots on, put on a happy face, force myself to do things I don't want to do. The answer here is not to do better. I had a conversation this morning. I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this, but I had a conversation this morning at work. Uh, I was in the weight room. For the last hour of work, we get to uh, go to the weight room and pretend to work out. Um, I don't really know how to work out in a weight room, but I just run on a treadmill. Um, there was another guy in there, and I was talking to him, and he always asked me on Sundays, you going to church today, Caleb? I said, yeah. And so he, today he actually asked me, are you preaching? I said, yeah. And he said, what are you preaching on? I was like, well, here we go, you know, gospel conversation right here. So I got to share the gospel with him and, and all kinds of cool stuff. But he, he kept saying this, this refrain, which was, you know, in general, he was trying to agree with what I was saying, but he was trying to just sort of rephrase it like, yeah, you know, I, I agree. I just, you know, it's a new year, and every year I just, I tell my family, I just, I want to do better. I just, I want to do better. I want to be a better dad, a better husband, a better, uh, better officer. I want to do better. And I don't disagree with that, right? We should want to do better, right? I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband, but that's not the point of what I was saying, right? What is our power for doing better? It's not us. It's not our own power. It's not our own will. It is remembering the grace that we have received in Christ. It is being filled with the knowledge of the truth. It's meditating on the gospel so that when we remember how much we have received The chains come off, and we are free to love sacrificially. What's going to make you a better father? Meditating on the gospel. Why would you ever be more gracious to your children? Because you've received an infinite amount of grace in Christ. Why would you ever speak tenderly to your wife or your husband? Because we have a Father in heaven who speaks tenderly to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So why would we treat people the way that their sin deserves? I've talked a lot today about easy believism, which is our tendency to consider ourselves Christians when our faith is not genuine. But it would be wrong for us to run the other direction and just leave here better legalists. We don't want to leave thinking that we must fill our lives with good works so that we can earn our way into the grace of God. You already have the grace of God. You're free, brothers, sisters. You're no longer a slave to sin. Grace has already been accomplished for us. Christ has come. He has fulfilled all righteousness. That doesn't mean that we don't need to pursue righteousness, 
but it means that those who are in Christ are set free from the chains of sin and selfishness. And we are now, as James says, judged according to the law of liberty. We are free to love and serve sacrificially, not because that earns favor with God, but because it is the natural response of those who have been set free from sin. Our good works are the fruit of our justification, not the root of it. So if you're here and your desire is to love others better, if you know of people in your life who are hurting and in need and you want more compassion, then remember the gospel, the compassion that has been shown to you What kind of love and compassion have you received in Christ? How undeserving of it are you? How thankful are you for all the spiritual and physical benefits you have received in Christ? Have you been the recipient of compassion from others? How amazing was that? And then as you meditate on those things, ask the Lord for a heart of compassion for your fellow man. Pursue good works. Pursue acts of love and sacrifice for the good of others. Make your calling and election sure in the power of Christ. Why? Because true faith will will be accompanied by good works toward our fellow man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unity of your word. We thank you for the glory we find in it. We thank you for the help that we find. And may we not leave here just better legalists. Father, may we, may we not consider ourselves Christians without genuine faith, but may we, may we not also try to do better to earn your grace because it ceases to be grace at that point. Father, you have given us so much in Christ. May we now turn our hearts to him, even as we observe the Lord's Supper. May this be a time where we remember uh, faithfully what we have been given. We remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ who was shed for us. And Lord, in that, may we be empowered to love our fellow man. We thank you, God, for these promises. We thank you for the truth that convicts and edifies and builds us up for good works. In Jesus' name, amen.